we're going to continue our worship, and we're going to read a responsive reading, and that means we each have kind of parts to play in this. So I've got Peyton up here. He's going to lead you guys, and you're going to see the words up here on the screens in bold print. That's what you're going to read, and then I'll read the other stuff. So follow this gentleman right here. We got that? Everybody know this is Peyton. Take it away, Peyton. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. When he had finished washing their feet, he put it on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord. And rightly so, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to each of the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ. Thanks, Peyton. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this day and for all your blessings. Thank you that we could be here another week to come and worship you in your presence, Lord. Thank you for the mission team that came back from the Dominican Republic yesterday, and please be with the mission team going down there this week. May your work be done through them. Please be with Pastor and Mrs. Allen while they are away on vacation. Help them to get the rest they need and deserve. Speak to us today, Lord, and allow us to open our hearts to receive your word so that it may edify and strengthen us in the days to come. Thank you for all your blessings and your loving kindness to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, it's vacation season. Pastor Ed and his family are on vacation for the next couple of weeks. I'm Alex York. I'm the associate pastor. And this morning, I want to talk to you about a servant's heart. I don't know if that terminology is familiar to you or not, but about, let's see, this would have been 35 years ago, my wife Jill and I had just gotten married. We were wrapping up our college careers. We knew I had four years of grad school ahead of me at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. So we began to look for housing. And we had been living in married student housing at the University of Texas at Arlington. It was a real small one-bedroom place. 
I think we paid 150 a month. That was because it was student housing, and it was also 35 years ago. And so we were looking at other places. We looked at apartments in the area of Fort Worth where the seminary was located. And the seminary was built about 150, 200 years ago, and it was kind of way outside of town to the south. And the area of town that grew up around it was kind of industrial, a little rough around the edges. And some of those apartments, even though they were pricier than the 150 bucks a month we were used to, they didn't seem to be like the kind of place we would feel comfortable living. So we looked at married student housing at the seminary. And the seminary had begun buying up these little bungalows, these 800 square foot bungalows that had been built in the 20s and 30s. And they would buy those and they would turn them into duplexes. And so for about $200 a month, you could rent a 400 square foot duplex and we had friends that lived in one of these and it was funny because to get through their living room to get to the kitchen you'd have to go like this because the couch was on one wall and the TV was on the other and there was only about eight or nine inches in between the two it was so small so we were trying to figure out what else could we do what are our other options and we found out that the seminary owned a mobile home park they had bought it years before it was just over the railroad tracks but about six blocks maybe from the, the main part of the campus. And we thought, well, this would be great. We could buy a mobile home and build some equity in the four years that we're there and actually walk away with some cash in our pocket. So we looked at the seminary mobile home park and we found a lovely 1961, I don't even know the brand of the trailer. It had originally been parked in Florida. It was a 12 by 48 palatial space that we started our family in. And the couple that was selling it, we saw the for sale sign, we called, set up an appointment. I'd already arranged financing. They were asking $5,000. $5,000 for my first house. Now, $5,000 would have bought you a pretty decent car back then, but you know, it was in a modest area of town. It was on the wrong side of the railroad tracks, literally. It was like 45 feet from an active railroad spur. And if you've never been in a 1961 mobile home, when a train comes by, like, it is a moving experience, I can tell you. You think, I mean, I guess a tornado would be a little more exciting, but not much. And so we approached this family. They wanted $5,000 for the trailer. We sat down, Marshall and Barbie Peters, and I said, okay, we want to buy the trailer, but it's going to take some work. So I'll offer you 4,500 bucks. And I figured they'd you know, we'd counter and we'd kind of maybe end up around 4750 or something like that. And they said, ah, oh, wow, okay, well, we're really glad that you're excited about the trailer and everything. This place has been a real blessing to us. God provided it for us, and we want it to be a blessing to the next family. So why don't we say 4350 And it's like, wait, this is reverse psychology. I understand. I'm supposed to go 5200 and not a penny less. And but then I was like, okay, 4350 that's cheaper. Yeah, yeah, let's go with that. And so we struck a deal at 4350 and I spent... The next couple of weeks thinking I was a really good negotiator, you know? Like, I was really smart. It was only a couple of years later when we joined the church that Marshall and Barbie went to that we realized what they were doing was they were demonstrating a servant's heart. That was a, a value that had been built into them in their church over their years at seminary. And it's this idea that you would put the interests and concerns of somebody else above your own, ahead of your own. Just like Christ did that for us, the idea of a servant's heart is that you are actively, regularly putting the interests and concerns of others ahead of your own. Now, if God wants to keep growing our church, our church has grown over 100% in the last year. And if we want to see our church continue to flourish, if we want to have a growing impact on the community around us, if we want to be able to 
introduced to people in our circles of influence who desperately need to know the hope and the direction that can only come from Christ, then we have to have servants' hearts as well. Servants' heart flows out of this passage we read in Philippians 2. Ed preached on this passage back in February, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to the recording of that sermon. He preached about humility. Now, if you look up humility, the definition is often the opposite of pride or arrogance. So you take a low view of your own accomplishments or your own abilities or your own importance. And biblically speaking, humility sort of adds to that. It means we have a healthy respect for who God is and what He's done for us. And we don't assume that our success or our abilities are there just because of our raw talent. We recognize that God has poured those into us. We own our own limitations, our flaws, and our failures rather than trying to cover them up. But see, the idea of a servant's heart goes way beyond humility. It's expressed to the fullest extent humanly possible in the example of Jesus. So I want us to go back to this Philippians 2 passage that we read just a few minutes ago. This is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to one of his favorite churches in Philippi, which was a kind of a crossroads located in modern-day Greece where people from all different cultures and backgrounds and nationalities kind of diverged. And so there were believers from all different backgrounds working together, trying to figure out how to live out their faith in a very challenging environment. And Paul says to them, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So what Paul is, is telling these early Christ followers is, I want you to be like Jesus because Jesus modeled a servant's heart. Jesus gives us the clearest picture possible of a servant's heart. So Paul says, I want you to have that same mindset, the same outlook, the same prevailing attitude. This should be your default setting if you are a follower of Jesus. Because Jesus was in nature absolutely divine. He was fully God. John tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he's talking about Jesus there. So Jesus has always existed with God the Father and God the Spirit, fully equal with God, but he didn't consider his equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Some translations say he didn't hold on to it tightly. Instead, he was willing to hold on to it loosely, and he took his majesty and glory and his fully deserved eternal place in heaven, and he let go of that, and he laid it down for our sakes, and he clothed himself in flesh so he could become God with us. And he didn't just teach us about God's love, he demonstrated it by laying down his life on a cross so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have a fresh start with God our Father. In tremendous humility, he traded his eternal majesty for frail humanity. He was obedient to his Father's plan, even to death, and not just any death, not a noble death, fitting a king, but a terrible, tortuous death on a cross. A shameful, humiliating, agonizing death. So Jesus chose freely to walk the path of suffering for us so we could get a do-over with God. Now that's a picture of humility 
on steroids. That's a picture of humility stretched to the extremes of the imagination. It's not just an attitude, but a life of actively pursuing the best interest of others, even though it would cost him everything. And Paul says, that's the example for anyone who considers themselves a follower of Jesus. If you want to know what authentic Christianity looks like, it ought to look like self-sacrificing service. It comes from the inside out. This is not us trying to impress God by acts of service so that we can earn our way into heaven. That's never going to happen. It is us receiving what Christ has already done for us and out of gratitude saying, I want to follow your example. I want to be like Jesus. I want from the inside out to model actively living with a servant's heart where I am putting the interests and concerns of others ahead of my own. Now let's back up a few verses and get some insight into what a servant's heart really is in everyday terms. So again, this is the same chapter of Philippians, chapter 2. And Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So in this really brief, compact, concise passage, Paul defined a servant's heart for us. He breaks it down for us so we know exactly what it would look like in our day-to-day life. So first of all, if I'm developing a servant's heart, if I'm cultivating, if I'm trying to grow a servant's heart, then I don't act out of self-interest. As much as possible, I don't let my own ambition or my own conceit drive my attitudes or actions. I need to be on the lookout for self-centeredness or the desire to advance my agenda. I need to identify the self-serving hunger in me for attention or recognition or sympathy or approval. For most of us, most of the time, we are quite capable of deceiving ourselves. And we can justify our thoughts or our words or our decisions. Oftentimes, we're just so busy, we don't even think about our motives, much less open up our hearts to God's Holy Spirit and ask Him to come in and search and look for anything in us that is not pleasing to Him. We've so carefully hidden things away, we're oblivious to them. So for me, I could be standing in the express lane at the grocery store, and I just happen to notice the person in front of me looks like they might have more than 15 items. What is the margin of error for the express line, I ask you? You know, like, is it four items? Seven, are you kidding? Seven? And so I want to think about what's in my best interest in that kind of situation. Or uh, I find myself struggling with this when I disagree with my wife. My wife, Jill, who is still thankfully married to me. I'm thankful. I don't know if she's thankful, but she's thankfully married to me. When we started dating, I was heading for law school. And so she, for about 35 years, has accused me of a bait and switch because lawyers generally make a little more money and go on nicer vacations than pastors do. And she's really smart. She has well-informed opinions. So whenever there is dissonance in our relationship, whenever there is discord, it gets difficult because I like arguing. That's why I wanted to go to law school. Because like, wait, I get paid to do this? Are you kidding? And so my historical default setting is how do I win this fight? Just a hint to any of you who are newly married husbands, that's a really bad approach to resolving conflict with your wife. But if I'm listening or if I'm asking questions focusing more on a resolution to the situation than winning the fight, then we reach a better decision. 
And I have a better understanding of my wife, and she has a better understanding of me, and our relationship is stronger. So I often need to remind myself, it's not about me. I often have to ask God, would you help me push my self-interest out of the way? Because for me, anyway, it's very easy to make that my default mode. So I don't act out of self-interest if I'm serious about developing a servant's heart. A second characteristic, if I'm cultivating a servant's heart, is I value others above myself. So humility says, don't think too highly of yourself. Take your attitude, your opinion, your self-assessment, and just let's bring it down a little bit. You might be overestimating how special you really are. A servant's heart says, when you look at somebody else, don't just do that, but you look at them and you elevate their position. You value them more highly than yourself. You think about it and you say, here's a person of immense value to God. They're an image bearer of our Heavenly Father. Jesus laid down His life for them. So they matter to God and they ought to matter to me. And if I'm honest before God and my friends about my flaws and failures and shortcomings, if I remind myself that I'm a work in progress, that I don't have it all together, then I am less likely to look at someone else with judgment or a critique of their behavior or their attitude or their clothing or their appearance or whatever and realize, wait a minute, this is somebody that God cares about, somebody who God is working on also. So it's easier for me to remember to show grace to others if I am mindful of this idea of valuing them more than myself. I may not know them, I may not like their t-shirt, their language, or some other element of their outward appearance, but because Jesus modeled it, I need to show them respect and dignity and courtesy. Frustration is a great warning light for us. It's like one of those dashboard lights. When it comes on, you go, what? what's going on? Oh, I'm running out of gas. Or check the engine. It's a warning light. When we get frustrated, we start getting wound up. That's one way that God lets us know, hey, I'm going to give you an opportunity to raise the value of somebody else and to put their values ahead of your own. So I don't know about you, but when I make a Costco run, I am generally trying to be as expeditious as possible. If I have an afternoon to while away, I don't go to Costco. I mean, I want to get in there. I want to get my stuff in my head. I'm mapping out the layout. And you realize that Sterling and Leesburg are different, so you have to kind of recalibrate. And you're thinking like, okay, do I have maximum maneuverability with a shopping cart or do I have to use one of those flatbeds? Is there any way possible that I can just, you know, because I can cut through the crowds a little easier with the shopping cart. So I often get frustrated with people who block half of the aisle. You know, they go up and they're a sample person here and a sample person here and someone moving slowly stops and they go, hmm. And they've got their cart like blocking the other part of the aisle and they're stretched out so there's no way you can get past them, you know? And it's just like, come on, get them both, just grab them, get out of the way, would you, lady? I'm in a hurry. Or what about people who, in the clothing section, you know how the tables are really kind of close to each other? And there are people who will have their kid in the cart, and they pull up, and it's not really snugged up to the table, and they walk over here. And then they walk over here, and they get a little farther on, and their kid's there, and you can't get by. And they're not close enough for you to say, uh, excuse me, could you scoot your cart over so I can get by? And you don't want to touch the cart because there are kids in it. I'm the creepy old guy now. That's just my lot in life. They go like, don't you get near my kid. And so you can't, and you don't want the kid to fall down. So you just have to go down, you know, like behind the sheets and the socks and the underwear and then come back the other side just to look at t-shirts. That frustrates me. You probably can't tell. That frustrates me <laughs> a lot. So a few years ago, I met Walter. Walter is 92 years old. He's a retired pastor, and he is a great encourager. He's a prayer warrior. 
Every Saturday, he pulls out his notebook, and he has the names of pastors all over the country, and he spends like two or three hours praying for each one of us. Walter is married to beautiful Betty, and Betty has Alzheimer's. Walter would say, well, she's not aging as gracefully as I am, but she's the love of my life, and her favorite place to go, wouldn't you know it, it's Costco. I mean, she loves Costco. That's her favorite place for an outing because the samples, and she'll turn to Walter and go like, is this free? Wait, is this free? Is this free? You know, she loves it. And, and every time you go in, you know, the colorful beach towels and the sun hats and everything, they were here, but you moved them. Look, they're over here now. She loves it. It's such a great place to go. It's exciting. They will go two or three times a week. Now, I'm the kind of guy at my default setting, because of my frustration, I would probably run over Betty. But God says, look, I need you to have a servant's heart. I need you to see her, not as a hindrance or a bother or an obstacle, but a beautiful daughter, a treasured princess of the King of Heaven. Paul says, if you're going to follow in Jesus' footsteps, you need to value others above yourself. Another fact from this passage, if I want to develop a servant's heart is I put the interests of others ahead of my own. So Paul doesn't say I have to disregard all of my interests, ignore healthy boundaries, neglect my responsibilities, become a doormat for everybody else. The Amplified Bible puts verse 4 this way, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So we live in a culture that fuels self-centeredness, but a servant's heart pushes back against that mindset and says, what's in that person's best interest? I already know what's in my best interest, but what's in their best interest? And there's this active sense to this. I need to be on the lookout, proactively watching and trying to discern what's in the interest of the people around me rather than passively waiting for them to bring it to my attention. And once I've identified what's in their best interest, I take tangible action on their behalf. So I had a number of examples for this, but then I came in this morning. I like coming in early on Sunday morning, so I'm usually the first person here. The next person in the building after me this morning was someone on the worship team. And they arrived early, and they began setting out carpet tiles. I don't know if you know this, but we have a different team that sets up the carpet and the chairs, the worship team, that's not on their job description. There are a couple of people on the worship team this morning who work more frequently with kids and youth than they get to be on stage. There's one person on the team who fairly frequently sneaks back to the preschooler wing over there, and he likes to sing with the little kids. He's no better back there than he is up here, but he likes singing Jesus Loves Me in the B-I-B-L-E. And it's not just people on the worship team, there are folks on the equipment team that come in here at least 90 minutes before our first service, and they begin transforming this from a gymnasium to a worship center. Some of them come in earlier, most of them park on the back row of the parking lot, and they save the more convenient spots for people who will come later. Maybe they're running behind, or they have a couple of kids, and they need to be in the spot closest to the building. We have families who serve together, parents and kids working together. If you come in before the 9 o'clock service quite often, you will see this, and you'll see it a lot after this service, that there are people on the equipment team, and it's not just the mom or the dad, it's their kids that are helping. And some of these kids are really little. I say that is brilliant parenting. 
You know, as parents, we can talk about the servanthood of Jesus, but how much more effective if we model it for our kids? There are a bunch of families around here who serve as families. They might be all in the same area, or they might be spread out all over the place, but that is brilliant parenting when you serve together. A few weeks ago, we had a funeral here for a family who does not attend Gateway. It was on a Thursday night. We had volunteers here till 11 o'clock at night, cleaning up, cheerfully straightening up, resetting things so that we could go back to business as usual the next day. That's a servant's heart. We have small groups who have shouldered the financial load for group members in medical crisis. We have people who have opened up their home and let others stay with them. We have people who have vehicles that they freely lend to other people when their cars are out of commission. This is exactly what Paul is talking about here actively putting the interests and concerns of others ahead of our own. So, how do we apply this this week? How do we get really practical here? Well, think about relationships, like our conversations. I'm somebody who loves to talk. Actually, yeah, that gives the impression that I like conversation. I love to talk. I'm not that big on listening to other people. So, I have to routinely kind of think about it. Let's see, there are four people in the conversation, so... My limit's 25%, really? Can I push that to 60? You know, maybe somebody's quiet and I can suck up their time. But in conversation, what if I were doing just my share? What if I was asking questions and drawing others out? What if rather than gossiping about other people or critiquing or slandering, what if I let no unwholesome word come out of my mouth but only what was helpful for building up the other people in the conversation? Think about conversations on social media. <laughs> I'm sorry, that, it just cracks me up. I mean, I wonder if anybody has ever had their position changed by a post on social media. I doubt it. But, you know, somebody will say something, somebody will say something else, and then, you know, and it just goes from one thing to the next, and it just gets out of hand. What if respect and gentleness, humility and politeness were part of our exchange in social media? What if our tone was that we didn't assume people who disagree with us are unintelligent or unchristian or un-American? Like, what if you said, like, huh, I think I understand your position, but tell me more about that. That invites a conversation rather than flagrantly throwing stuff in their face. Think about this in our families. We have a lot of students in here. Our elementary kids are in the service today. We've got youth in. How do you think your parents would respond if you asked them on a regular basis, can I help? What can I do to help? I'll tell you what they would do. Oh my gosh, write that down. It's June, what? This is when he said, can I help you? He must be sick. We better take him to the doctor. It could be just with the dishes, or the yard worker, taking care of a younger brother or sibling, but that would be revolutionary. A lot of kids, especially today, are self-centered and self-promoting. But think about at your school, if you were the kid who was building up other people and encouraging others rather than cutting them down. Somebody who would help someone else study for a test or welcome a new student who just transferred into the school. I got to tell you, that is exactly what Jesus is talking about. That's what he wants from us if we're following in his footsteps. Parents, I wonder if sometimes we're so focused on allocating consequences for behavior or just getting to the yes or no. But if we ask questions, we might have more of an opportunity to understand what was going on with our kids, what they were thinking. What were you thinking? That doesn't count. 
you have to kind of like draw it out in a smaller, quieter voice, you know? It may not change the consequences at all, but if you ask and try to get some context for their decision, man, you get some insight into your kid. You get smarter as a parent, and you get to put this servant's heart into play. I think sometimes parents, our expectation is that our kids should make us look good. Their behavior, their academics, their performance on the team, that's about me. It really isn't. It's not even about them. It's about the team. So if we were to put our interests and concerns aside and think about what was in our kids' best interest, that could make a difference. What about at work? I say this as somebody who was chronically two or three minutes late for many, many years. What does it communicate to people if you show up late? Somebody said this to me. Well, I think you're saying, Alex, you value your time more than you value my time. No, 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 that's not it. Just, there was stuff going on, and I, you know. Wait, that's how it makes you feel? That I think my time is worth more than yours? So show up on time. What about praying for the people that you work with? What about helping out other people when they get behind or in a bind, even if it's their fault, and you came alongside them and helped carry the load for them? What about not worrying about who gets the credit for an idea or a project that's successful? What about serving somebody who works below your level, you know? You're a supervisor. They work for you. They're su yeah, but what if you thought about what was in their best interest? How to make them successful? How to help them grow or do better? What about someone in your office who's having a difficult time outside of work? Is there a way you could come alongside them and encourage and support them? Please understand, I am not talking about random acts of kindness. I'm a big fan. Do that all the time. Yeah, that's great. But this is way more than random acts of kindness. This is a repetitive mindset where you habitually are trying to train yourself to pattern your life after Jesus Christ and actively put the interest and concerns of others ahead of your own. Okay, so what about here at Gateway? What about for our church family? If you think of yourself as like a spiritual outsider, you are interested, you're examining this, not sure you buy it all, not sure where you fit with God. I would say this is helpful information to you because this is what it's supposed to look like for people who make a commitment to Christ. Our identity is wrapped up in this idea of servanthood. It's not that we have everything together. It's not that we don't have any problems. It's that we are servants. That's how Jesus defined it. Jesus served us on the cross so that we can have a relationship with God. He put our interests and concerns above his own so we could be forgiven and start over with a clean slate. And we don't serve so that we can earn God's favor or impress him enough that he rewards us. Instead, we serve out of gratitude for what he's already done for us and because of his example. So I would encourage you, if you're new, I think it would be smart to begin serving shoulder to shoulder with people in the church so you kind of see what goes on behind the scenes. You get an insider's look before you make that commitment. Let's say you've been a part of another church and you want to figure out is gateway the church God wants you. Get involved so you understand what it looks like. And I hope you see a servant's heart, but I also hope you would bring a servant's heart. For gateway regulars, let's think about this when we walk in the building on Sunday morning. Don't just gravitate towards people you know. Take the initiative to approach people you don't know. I don't care if it's awkward. I don't care if you don't know what to say or you're not really a budding socialite. I get that. But they may not be either. And what if this is their first Sunday? And because of our fear or our discomfort, we don't go and talk to them. And they leave and nobody has taken that initiative. Nobody has said, wait a minute, 
I know I would feel awkward, but I'm going to put your interests and concerns ahead of mine, so I'm going to go talk to you. I'm going to say, hey, my name's Alex. Who are you? I don't think I know you. That's where it starts. We need to get involved in regularly serving around the church on a team or with kids or in youth ministry, just coming in early or staying late and pitching in. Serving where there is a need, that's a great place to start because whenever you serve, you are developing a servant's heart. You're adding capacity to your serving heart. And the more you do that, the more able you're going to be when God opens up an opportunity for you to serve in a big way. You'll have already developed that heart and you'll have the aerobic capacity to jump in in a big way and serve in the name of Jesus. You can jump in right away the first Sunday. Let me just make it clear. You can help pick up the carpet and pack up the chairs this afternoon after church. We'd love to have the help. But I think as a church family, we get this at one level, but I want you to understand this is something that every one of us, whether you've been a believer for a few months or decades, every one of us needs to go back and revisit this and think about how can I develop more of a servant's heart? It's been quite a while. I was coming back from Washington, D.C. I was on the GW Parkway. It was late in the afternoon on a weekday, and you know everybody and their brother was coming west and trying to get out of town. It was probably about 3 o'clock. It's a 45-mile-an-hour speed limit. I think we were going 15 or 20, and both lanes were jammed, and everybody is you know really tight on each other's bumpers and everything else. And to make it worse, there was a construction project that close the left-hand lane. That's the lane I'm in. So I can see traffic slowing down. People start putting on their signal. There's a sign, you know, lane closed, merge right. And I look over, there's a guy next to me in a, I can tell you the, the year and model, but he's in a Buick, an old guy, and he doesn't even make eye contact with me as if to say, you are not changing lanes. Just sit there, buddy. You are in the wrong lane. Okay, so I got my turn signal on. I'm regularly kind of checking over my shoulder, trying to see, is there room? kind of slowing down, you know, thinking maybe somebody will slow up and let me in. As is often the case, sometimes the lane that's merging ends up going faster. So uh, maybe a minute, two minutes later, I'm next to this guy again, and I look over. I'm not particularly looking at him. I'm just looking for a gap. Now we make eye contact. I'm very good at reading eyes, by the way. He says, don't even think about it. Like, oh, you have no, I, don't mess with me today. Okay, I just got my signal on. I'm just, you know, trying to keep moving here, buddy, you know. So we go up. A couple of minutes later, I'm next to him again. And this time, we lock eyes. And I am not going to repeat what his eyes said to me because this is a Sunday morning service. So I couldn't just wait. You know, there are cars behind me, and I've got to fill in the gap. And so the next time I'm beside him, he's looking at me. And it was lovely, but tragic at the same time. His foot slipped off of the brake pedal, and he taps the car in front of him. And now he's got to put it in park, get out of the car. The guy gets out there, you know, changing insurance information. I know I shouldn't have delighted in that, but you have been around people who are acting like jerks and you want them to get what they deserve. Like, may God give you everything you deserve, sir. And he just had a really bad day. And coincidentally, since I was in the left-hand lane and the right lane was no longer moving, everybody in the left-hand lane could just merge freely. We were going 40 miles an hour down the road. He's back there exchanging insurance information. I, you know, what a jerk. Whoa, wait a minute. I think that's kind of like the Northern Virginia predominant heart attitude. You know, like, I am here. I got here. Do not even think about cutting in front of me. This is my space right here. By golly, don't even think about it. And I act like that sometimes. 
And I forget that I'm supposed to have this servant's heart beating inside of me where I'm, I'm looking out for other people, but oftentimes it's just all too easy to go like, no, 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 this is, I, I earned this. I got in the right-hand lane. I deserve this. And I feel like sometimes when we do that, not intending to, but we cause damage to the people in front of us and behind us. We foul things up for the people closest to us. And we miss out on what God has down the road ahead for us because we're stuck exchanging insurance information. By golly, I'm here. Yeah, you are. See you later. Man, God wants us to have a servant's heart, not to weigh us down, but to help us experience life the way he designed it. And I just worry that our culture makes it really easy for us to forget about that. And so this morning, I want to ask you just to think about this and spend some time with God. A couple of categories that we'll throw up here on the screen. Just think about, hey God, are, are there areas in my life where, you know, maybe I need to exercise a servant's heart more? Are there places where I need to invite you in, where I need to give you more freedom to work, where I need to make some changes in my family or at work or with my classmates, with my neighbors or my church or my enemies. So I want to ask you to take a minute or two here and just think about that and spend some time with God asking yourself, hey God, do I have homework to do in this area? And then I'm going to close this in. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the absolute clarity you have given us about what a servant's heart looks like. Thank you for modeling that, not asking us to do anything that you have not already done for us. So please cultivate in us out of gratitude for what you've already done, out of just a response and a recognition that this is what brings you honor. Help us to put the interests and concerns of others ahead of ourselves. Whether it's at home or at work or driving or at the store or wherever we are, give us servants' hearts. We know, Jesus, there is a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord. And on that day, we long to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. So I pray that you would give us hearts like yours. Cultivate in us servants' hearts. Help us this week to bring honor and glory to you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You are the word at the beginning. One with God.
Have a blessed week.